Delighted, as you say, to have uh, Professor Uber Secret with us today. Um, he is no uh, stranger uh, to the Berkeley campus. In fact, um, although he and I have only met over the last 24 hours, it's been striking and uh, and very delightful to see how many people have just come up to him. I mean, walking walking over here from uh, from Alumni House, uh, people said, "My goodness, here you are!" So uh, it's very nice indeed to have you here. Um, he retired recently from his position as Professor of Anthropology at Princeton, having begun his studies as an English major uh, at the University of Ceylon, I suppose, when, that, uh, when Sri Lanka was still so-called. Uh, he acquired his PhD in Anthropology at the University of Washington, and uh, that was one of the American universities which he uh, taught at. Uh, in fact, before uh, taking up his position at Princeton, uh, where he chaired the Department of Anthropology for several years, as well as at the University of Washington, um, he taught at UC San Diego. So again, certainly no stranger to this uh, place. Uh, Galanath Obiasika is a scholar of extraordinary um, breadth and range. Um, he's made fundamental contributions to the study of Buddhism, and South Asian religions. And he actually comes to us now from his native Sri Lanka, uh, where he has been and will be continuing to do field work on Buddhist practices in remote parts of that island. But he's not only a leading anthropologist and interpreter of religious traditions, but also a thinker whose work, as you start to read it, uh, plunges deeply into history philosophy, uh, medicine, psychoanalysis, and, and other fields too. Among his hundred and more articles and reviews, you find such titles as The Idiom of Demonic Possession, The Conscience of the Parricide, The Illusory Pursuit of the Self, and Illness, Culture, and Meaning. And his books are just as wide-ranging. They include, among uh, others, and I'm merely being selective, The Cult of the Goddess Patini, Buddhism Transformed, and a fascinating study entitled The Apotheosis of Captain Cook, European Myth-Making in the Pacific, where the important thing is it's the Europeans who are making the myths and not the um, Pacific peoples themselves. And that book was awarded the Book Prize uh, of the American Society for 18th Century Studies. Now, most appropriately from our point of view today, uh, Professor Obisikra's latest book, which I can't resist holding up, uh, was published only last year by the University of California Press, entitled Imagining Karma. This book investigates and compares rebirth beliefs in an astonishingly wide range of world culture. Buddhism, yes, we expect that from 
uh, him. We're going to hear in this book, as well as in today's lecture, about the Trobriand Islanders, but also a great deal of information about North American um, Indian culture. And uh, from my particular uh, very local perspective, a great deal about ancient Greece. As a classicist familiar only with the Greek material in the book, I find this a splendidly rich and innovative study and uh, I recommend it uh, with enormous um, enthusiasm. Professor Obasikra has been the recipient of numerous prestigious fellowships, far too many to name here. He's in great demand as a lecturer for important occasions such as this one, so we're very, very fortunate to have him with us today to deliver this year's Forster Lecture. So please join me in welcoming our distinguished visitor who will speak to us on Trobriand Rebirth and the Fate of the Soul, an Old Debate Revisited. Professor Oversikra. Well, thank you, Dean Mason. Thank you, Tony. And um, as we say in Sri Lanka, I born, which means may you live long. And uh, since we are on the brink of war, that's a, that's a good wish. Um, I can't function without water. Um, So it's, a, it's a, I've seen so many old faces and some young faces and um, sort of th third generation scholars, you know, and, um, and uh, it's, it's, uh, I, I've been here in, uh, on campus before, so it's, it's a real privilege and an honor and a pleasure to be here. Uh, the topic, of course, uh, as you know, it's on, on Trobriand rebirth. Uh, uh, it's sort of sort of parasitic on my book, uh, Imagining Karma, um, uh, but I, I, I presume that most of you have, haven't read it in the first place. So this is a, a, a kind of provocation for you to buy it and enhance a poor retired man's royalties. <laughs> um, uh, so, the, so I must say that uh, I'll just briefly mention some of the things that I try to do in that book. It's, it's the first study uh, of comparative uh, rebirth, you see, because we are, we assume that rebirth theories are found only in the Indian subcontinent. So the first thrust of that book is to decenter India as the locust and ground of rebirth. I'm saying, not so. It's found in a multiple, multiplicity of cultures, small-scale societies in West Africa. Now we know among Amerindians, you know, in the Northwest Coast, Inuit, you know, uh, Trobriands and, and so forth, you see. It's found in, um, uh, in ancient Greece, as Tony pointed out, and some classical scholars might be horror-struck at the way I'm approaching this whole uh, issue. But uh, so, uh, so India is not the home of rebirth. So this, I think, has provoked me to look at um, rebirth in a special kind of perspective, and that is, uh, rebirth has a, what I call a certain elementary structure. That in, in rebirth you have the soul, and we are dealing with immortal to soul, so I have, to, I have to talk about that. The soul comes from wherever it is into the womb of a, of a, of a human being, a woman, you see, goes round the life cycle, 
goes to some other world, comes back to this world, and it goes as a cyclical structure. This cyclical structure is, is found whatever the place, whether it's in ancient Greece, whether it is in, 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 in the so-called small-scale societies, whether it is Buddhism or Jainism, you cannot miss this psychical structure. It is there. It is the elementary form of a, of a rebirth eschatology. And it is on this basis that the larger cosmological systems and the more complex cosmological systems that you associate, uh, that you associate with Buddhism and with Greece, so to speak, are built you know, around that structure. So we know, for example, that Buddhism really has that same elementary structure, but it introduces a new theme, karma. That is reward or punishment for your ethically intentioned good and bad actions. That means, I point out in the book, the other world has to split at least into a two portions, where the good guys go and the bad guys go, you see. Most of us are bad guys. And then back again to the human world, you have a human world which is a plus world and a minus world, you see. So there is, whereas in the Trobrian instance and in the small scale societies where you have a kind of ancestor cult, the soul at death goes to the other world, comes back into the same group, the same patrilineal or matrilineal or bilateral society. But whereas when you have ethical, the ethical dimension that you get in Buddhism, there is what I call a dislocation of place. You cannot be born in the same place. Now with that kind of proviso, sort of let me get into my <coughs> little bit of esoterica, you see, uh, which is uh, Trobrian rebirth. And, um, and I want to sort of uh, say that in addition to Trobian rebirth, it deals with the Buddhists. I deal with both Trobian and Buddhists because one of the aims of the book, and uh, of course one of my aims is, uh, here is to sort of argue with my colleagues in anthropology that relativism is not the only thing, you see, which is so popular today uh, that I am sort of pro-relativistic and also anti-relativistic. So, you know, so that in some sense I am arguing that there, though there are great soteriological differences between, let us say, Christianity, Buddhism, and Trobrian, there are also similarities and family resemblances uh, to be parasitic on Wittgenstein here. So let me say that um, uh, I'm going to limit this topic in a, in a very drastic fashion. And that is, I'm not going to talk of the immortality of the soul, since you're all going to buy this book, you know, you can read it yourself. But rather, I'm going to talk about um, one aspect of it, namely, a, a problem that intrigues me. That is, some spirit or soul from, that exists elsewhere has to be reborn in the human body, you see. How does this embodiment take place? You know, and this is this is uh, the latter part of my uh, uh, the title, an old debate revisited. The old debate is truly ancient. In the 19th century, anthropologists like Fraser, Hartland, and others uh, pointed out the fact, and I think they are true up to a point, that in many societies, particularly in Melanesia, among the Austro uh, Australian Aborigines. Uh, people did not have any idea 
of physical procreation or the role of the father in, 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 in conception, you see. Physiological paternity was unknown to them. And in the early 19th century, you had um, uh, ethnologists, uh, 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 sort of pioneer ethnologists who worked among the Australian aborigines who seemed to confirm that hypothesis. Then you get more professional anthropologists, Ashley Montague, an old friend of mine, unfortunately now deceased, deceased, not diseased, um, and Phyllis Carberry, Carberry, who worked among, uh, wrote a very fine book on uh, uh, Aboriginal women, who pointed out that according to the, uh, the Aborigines among whom she worked, there was a notion of time long ago. And in that time long ago, there was a fixed pool of souls. And this fixed pool of souls were wandering around and got embodied in plants, animals, and so forth. And after some time, achieved a kind of human embodiment, you see. And uh, she said that even after 30 years of contact with white people, the aborigines with, with whom she worked uh, had no conception of the, uh, of the relation between um, coitus uh, and, uh, and procreation, you see. That debate, that debate is, uh, is really uh, nothing new. I mean, um, these debates have come and gone in anthropology. Uh, Tony mentioned the debate uh, that I had about Captain Cook, you know. After some time, these debates become rather boring, and no one pays any attention, uh, just like the debate we, uh, that I've just had about Captain Cook. But periodically, someone gets interested in it, you know, out of uh, new data that has emerged uh, out of new theoretical or ideological interests, often hard to distinguish in the human sciences, you know, and then the old debate get, gets a kind of new life. And this new life came around um, 1966, when one of the great anthropologists, Edmund Leach, a very clear friend of mine and a kind of intellectual guru, who is also now deceased, you see, wrote a very interesting article called Virgin Birth. In this article, which appeared in Man in um, uh, 1966, the, the Journal of Anthropological Institute, Leach made the point that all these people are talking about Australian Aborigines and Melanesians ignorant, so to speak, of uh, physical procreation and the role of the father and, and, and uh, sexual intercourse. Uh, he said, look, is that so different from that of the virgin birth, you know? I mean, you have Christ's immaculate conception, and is it all that different? Uh, and uh, his point, and I'm not quite sure I fully agree with him, because on the one hand, it is true that Christ's uh, immaculate conception is really a quite an extraordinary event, but it is a, an extraordinary event. It is not something that, uh, not you and I, but mostly you Christians around here sort of uh, wouldn't sort of believe that, uh, you know, you, you produce your children through some kind of immaculate conception. So, so I, I don't think that uh, Leach's idea that the virgin birth was something similar to that of the aboriginal conception of spirit births uh, is, is quite right. And this, uh, this was taken up by uh, uh, another 
very important anthropologist, um, you know, who uh, argued uh, that, after all, um, the, the who, who made, the, uh, made the traditional point that the Australian Aborigines did have a notion of spirit conception, that is, as a spirit child who enters into the human womb, you know, and they were, you know, Spyro, that is the person we are talking about, again, uh, intellectual mentor of mine, Spyro made the, uh, the, uh, two points. One, that the idea of the uh, virgin birth is a very Christological thing. It is unique to Christianity. It is a miraculous thing. And it is a lot, uh, you know, something what Tertullian mentioned when he said, I believe in Christianity because it's absurd. You see, that is because of the nature of the miraculous in it. Whereas among the Australian Aborigines, it is a normal thing. Everyone conceives it in that way, you know. So he made a further point that we, we are not talking, um, uh, you know, the Australian Aborigines, uh, so to speak, um, were either ignorant of, of uh, physiological conception or, more likely, he said, they deny physical uh, conception because um, of unconscious motivations, in his case, uh, the edible theory. You see, the edible theory makes them want to deny. They know that uh, uh, subliminally, unconsciously, they know the relation between uh, um, uh, uh, sexual intercourse and, and conception, but they want to deny that in a psychoanalytic sense because of their uh, terrifying Oedipal complex. To me, that argument, too, is not entirely plausible, though he has spelt it in great detail in a book called Oedipus in the Trobriand, you know. It's not entirely plausible because we know from Malinowski, you know, that the Trobriand father-son relationship this is a matrilineal society, after all. The uh, Trobian uh, father-son relationship was a very good one, you know, they had friendly relations, and, um, and the hostility, Malinowski said, was projected not to the father, but to the mother's brother. A very interesting thesis that relativized uh, the Oedipus uh, complex. And it led to Auden's, I, I don't know the poem you are familiar with, uh, Auden, when you said, uh, Malinos Malinowski rivers, Benedict and others showed how common culture shapes the separate lives. Matrilineal races kill their mothers, brothers in their dreams and take their sisters for their wives, you see. So I think this is very interesting, very, very, it just struck me as I was saying, it's not in the paper, you see. Uh, this very interesting uh, 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 argument of Malinowski's was sort of shoved under the carpet because there was a lot of hostility from the psychoanalytic establishment, particularly people like Ernest Jones, so much so that Malinowski himself recanted and said, nothing of the sort, there is nothing called infantile sexuality, you see. So here's the argument, and, um, and, uh, and I'm now going to pr uh, present you my alternative view of it, you see. I'm saying the following. I'm suggesting that when you have a notion of spirit, 
that exists outside there, you know. And the spirit has to enter a human womb. There is a problem of the relationship between the spirit and the body in which it is conceived. You see, there is a problem and you can't get away from that. And I'm saying this problem is exacerbated when you have a distinction between the materiali materiality of the body and the spiritual nature of the soul. So you have the notion, the Christological notion, uh, the miraculous notion of Christ's immaculate conception. And you have it in, uh, in other societies too, in the birth of deities and so forth. And while I'm in this sort of uh, a poetic mood, uh, there's a, there, 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 suddenly uh, the two lines from, uh, from Yeats uh, came, uh, you know, struck me. What sacred drama through her body heaved when world transforming Charlemagne was conceived. You see, some these great people, when, you know, what happens when they are conceived. Then there's another problem. And I, th I am suggesting that other problem is different from the virgin birth. And that problem is what people like Malinowski and others have pointed out in respect of Melanesia. That is, the soul enters the body of generally everyone. You see? Everyone. You see? And then the problem is, what is the relationship between the soul that enters the human womb, you know, and the processes of bodily uh, procreation, you see? Does sexuality, does intercourse have a, have a uh, relation there? So I'm going to argue two things. I'm going to say, I'm going to first <laughs> present the Trobrian case, which is a sort of locus classicus of this <coughs> spirit conception theory. Secondly, I want to deal with the Buddhist case and show that the Buddhist case had both forms of spirit conception. Some sort of Buddhist scholars, I see my friend Padmanabh here, who might be shocked at what I'm going to say. But anyhow, I'm saying that the Buddha himself was born very much like Christ in the virgin birth model. You see, in a miraculous model. That model operates in respect of Buddhism. Then I'm suggesting, in the Buddhist tradition, there is a minor tradition which is very much like the Trobriand or the Australian uh, Adivasi or uh, Aboriginal traditions, namely spirit conception unmediated by sexual intercourse. That's my sort of thesis and I'm saying this is endemic to the societies in which you have rebirth theories. So let me start off with Malinowski. Um, in Malinowski's case, you see, um, in the Trobriand, as you know, he was in incarcerated there, physically uh, unable to get out of the Trobriand Islands in the First World War, and he wrote these marvelous books as a consequence of that. I'm not sure this is a good, good model for all of us to emulate, but still, um, he was there, and he, um, he wrote these very detailed accounts of Trobriand uh, uh, anthropology, uh, ethnography, and he was... And he has, in my opinion, you can't sort of dismiss him, he has detailed accounts of the notion of spirit conception. You see, he says what happens in Trobriand is simply this. The spirit enters from some other world, the spirit enters into the womb of the woman of the same matrilineal clan. 
Then it goes on the life cycle and at death goes into the other world which is called tumor, you see, and, and is uh, born as a spirit called Baloma and lives in that other world. After some time, you come back to the human world, back into the same matrilineal clan, into the womb of a woman, you see. And in this case, the, while the woman is bathing, or she has a presaging dream that the spirit has entered her, you know, there is some something that is going, some, some sign, some indication is given, uh, which is also true of other societies like Amerindians and Inuit, you know, you sometimes see the vision of the child coming. You know, the, the spirit child then is directed by an ancestor, the Baloma, into the womb of a woman, often when she is bathing, you know, and it enters her and she conceives a child and the husband has nothing to do with it, you know. Now this whole theory, wonderful theory, um, uh, you know, was, uh, in my view, it was based on, on a great deal of empirical evidence, and it received uh, some confirmation a few years later, in 1934, I think, uh, when uh, an English magistrate, Austin, Leo Austin, worked among the Trobriands and collected uh, through interviews, you know, so, uh, semi-structured interviews, first in English and then in Kirivinian, that's the uh, village where Malinowski worked, uh, on uh, trying to prove or disprove Malinowski's thesis that, cons that there are people without the knowledge of a physiological paternity. And he also came up with, uh, after very detailed interviews, he, he confirmed Malinowski's hypothesis and in fact said that these people have no notion of physiological paternity, uh, but uh, following Malinowski, uh, you know, Malinowski made the point that, uh, okay, earlier he made the point that sometimes uh, people in the Trobriand say, uh, this is not true of animals. See, for example, pigs copulate, they copulate, and they give birth. But then Malinowski said, well, you know, that's a different kind of thing. That's, that's, that's pigs and animals and not humans. But humans uh, have no idea. But uh, Austin pointed out very nicely that um, Malinowski's uh, thesis was really uh, confirmed. But one of the problems I have with both Malinowski and with Austin is simply this. You know, Malinowski is one of the great ethnographers and, you know, one of our, our great father figures. He believed that uh, the improbable thesis, to me, some, some of you may disagree, the improbable thesis that the f business of the anthropologist is to give the natives' point of view, you see. I mean, I don't think any anthropologist can do that in the first place, and I don't think any native can do that in the first place, you see. But any of that was his, but this is a sort of a, a sensible idea at that time. But when he got contradictory opinions, what did Malinowski say? He had this fantastic statement. He says, we must put these different contradictory statements, and here are his words, into a clear and final solution. <laughs> Shocking thing nowadays, you see. <laughs> Those are his actual words. So in spite of the fact that he's given to presenting the native point of view, what you really have is the discourse here, the multiplicity of native discourses. Pigs copulate, you know, and he said, well, you know, just forget about that. 
you see, uh, and uh, and so forth. And he's sort of uh, putting them into a kind of what he calls orthodoxy, you see, orthodoxy. So with Austin, Austin too tried to do the same thing. And uh, one, one of the troubling features about uh, Austin is that um, some of Austin's informants, and he said, you know, one of my best informants was a woman, you know? And uh, she said that, what are you talking about? He said, no, men, it is true that men have nothing to do with it. Spirit children also have nothing to do with it. We create our own children in our own wombs through the blood that we have inside of us. Here you have a fascinating view by women. You see, an unorthodox view by women saying what I would call um, physiological maternity. You see, they are denying that the father has any role, which fits in nicely with this matrilineal society, you know, and saying that, also saying that spirit conception has nothing to do with it. We are autonomous, we create our own children. And uh, Malinowski then said, I'm sorry, Austin then said, look here, you know, um, uh, these people, that they are strange, you know, there are a few women who believe in this unorthodox thing, but, um, but uh, when we question them further, they said that, yeah, that's true, we produce the thing, but at some point, the spirit comes there. Seems to me, nevertheless, an important statement, you see, which is uh, being ignored. Because what these women are saying is, we produce our own children, and after some time, of course, the spirit enters into the child, and, and, and you have uh, a spiritual development of the fetus, you see. So what I think is happening in these kinds of situations is rather troubling thing for anthropologists. We often ask questions about our informants, but our very physical presence poses a question to them, you see? So we ask a question like, how do how are children conceive? We bring in our preconceived notion that Okay, children are, are born, uh, you know, outside of bodily processes uh, through a, a spirit child that enters the womb. So we think uh, that we have got the answers, but we don't realize that, quote, natives out there have their own, have their own problems too. They have their own debates, you see. Here's a woman who says, we produce these children. And I'm sure Malinowski's early informants were right when they said, you know, pigs copulate, and then they bring out children, you know? And um, so what very often happens is that the kind of questions we often ask our informants, so to speak, imprisons the local discourse. We don't permit contending, contentious discourses to erupt and foul our, our hypothesis-specific kinds of uh, questions, you see. So this, I think, is a, is a real problem that came with both with Malinowski and with Austin, you know. And further, in, in Malinowski's well, second trip to the Trobriand, he was much more flexible because, for good reasons, he met a wonderful shaman whose spirit used to go into the world of the ancestors and comes back, you know, and, and tells what was happening there. So he became much more flexible and he engaged in dialogues with native informants. 
But, and it's challenge native informants to say, isn't all your answers are, are wrong, isn't it? I mean, I mean, people do have sexual intercourse and they produce, produce children. So, and he said, but the mission had asked that question before me, you know. So he, then he, he went on to say, I firmly, and his own words, arrogantly, you know, told them that that is not so, you know, you're wrong, you know, your, your conception is, uh, occurs through um, heterosexual intercourse, you know, and, uh, and so forth. Then these people, you know, what is happening is, what we don't realize is not a one-way street, this is a two-way street. So when you have these arrogant questions, first from the missionaries and then from Malinowski saying, you're all wrong, you know, uh, what do you say to this? These people then, what, what Bateson calls schismogenesis, you know, they just, they just gave the opposite reply and say, of course we are right, even pigs don't produce children, you see, <laughs> you know? And then Malinowski says, my God, how can people be so foolish? Yeah, that's not his words, but you know, I'm sort of putting it in his mouth. But how can be, 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 people be so foolish? Because I have seen, you know, that it is true that they castrate the male pigs, but then the copulation is done by wild pigs, feral pigs from out there, you know, I've seen them. But Malinowski never asked the question, my God, if you saw them after one year's field work, these guys who were living their whole lives there, didn't they see the same thing? You see? So what is really happening here is faced with this sort of unrelenting questions from first the missionaries and from the ethnographer, it is now the native who has retreated into the imprisoning discourse, you see. So this, of course, does not mean uh, that uh, these people didn't have a, a theory of, uh, of um, spirit procreation, and, and I think they did. But what, you, what I think uh, happened was that they had multiple theories, you know, and multiple theories of this uh, thing, including this woman who accidentally emerged out of the questionnaire, you know, and, uh, and these multiple theories are sort of stifled in the sort of anthropological representation of the ethnography. Now, what about the Buddhists? My gosh, I'm almost running out of time. Um, uh, so, I am suggesting, I, I, as I said, the Buddhists had both these conceptions. First, they had a, concep a conception of a conception uh, of, uh, of, a, of a kind of virgin birth, and the ideal type of that is, is very much like the Christological one. Uh, that's the Buddha's birth. Very early texts pointed out, you see, I'll quote some of it, that the Buddha-to-be was born in one of the heavens where all Buddhas are born, and after his lifespan there was over, he decided to be reborn in the human world, mindful and clearly conscious. He entered his mother's womb, mindful and clearly conscious. And when this happened, the earth trembled. You see, that's a great person appearing, Charlemagne. And then there appeared the illimitable glorious radiance surpassing the, even the divine majesty of the gods. As he entered the womb, four gods guard the four quarters to prevent harm done to the mother or the child. More miracles. 
The mother sees the Buddha in the womb as an emerald jewel and the child was complete in all uh, his um, bodily parts. Organs are perfect. Further, he issues quite stainless, undefiled by watery matter, undefiled by mucus, undefiled by blood, undefiled by any impurity. He is pure and stainless, owing to the purity of mother and son. And the texts go on to say that the mother dies seven days after he is born. And then in the wonderful Buddhist sort of midst of the eternal recurrence, all Buddhas are born in the same way. And all the mothers of Buddhas die seven days after the Redeemer is born. So you have a very interesting thing. Now in the historical traditions of Buddhism, it is impossible to convert the Buddha's mother into a kind of virgin. It is not hard to do, uh, not easy to do. But she conceives the Buddha when she is observing one of the Buddhist precepts among the ten that uh, people are supposed to observe. And that precept pertains to the absence of sexuality. So at the time the Buddha was conceived, she was not practicing sex with her husband, you know. So that is as far as um, the virgin birth uh, is concerned. And then the question you might ask is, what is the necessity for the mother to die in seven days? Virtually every textbook that I've written about Buddhism takes this literally. And you have to say, the, the Buddha's mother died soon after, you know, seven days is too much, you see, it's a soon after, that's the kind of thing. But we are not dealing with real events, you see, in a, in a life, I, I mean empirical events. We are dealing with mythic events. The necessity for the mother to die in seven days is very clear, according to the, the Theravada text, the southern Buddhist tradition to which I belong, and it says, <coughs> because no other child is fit to be conceived in the same womb as the Buddha. You see. The most interesting answer to this is given in the Mahavastu, a famous text of a, a group known as the Transcendentalists, you see, who in, sort of the heralded the Mahayana or the Northern tradition of Buddhism, in which um, uh, he, the text says, that the Buddha up in heaven says, I will descend into the womb of a woman who has only seven nights and ten months of her life remaining. And why so? Because, says he, it is not fitting that she who bears a peerless one like me should afterwards indulge in love. You see? So the motivation, that is, so the reason for the mother to die in seven days not, is not an empirical thing in history, but a necessity of the, of the story. You see, the womb in which the Buddha is born is pure, and you know South Asian conceptions of purity and impurity, and I'm sure similar conceptions existed in the Bible. I, I don't want to, uh, you know, go that far. But the womb in which the Buddha is born is in the first place pure because there was no sex, you know, and, it, and afterwards no one else can, uh, that womb cannot be contaminated. So you come 
very, very close uh, to that. Now again, given these sort of myths of the eternal return and so forth, you have a very fascinating accounts. The Buddha's father is called Suddhodana, which means, according to most uh, Sanskrit and Pali scholars, pure cooked rice. But local traditions make a different story. Local traditions say it is pure rice. And rice equals seed equals semen in all of the South Asian traditions and including European traditions, you see. So, in other words, not only is the womb of the Buddha pure, but the name of the Buddha's father is also taken up in the same spirit and you have him having a pure seed, you know, and, uh, and so forth. The Buddha's mother is called Maya. What does Maya mean? In the Upanishadic theory of the time, Maya means illusion, you see, or to create out of nothing, you see. So the Maya, the Buddha's mother, is an illusory figure. She's an illusory figure. She sees the Buddha in her womb in this way, you know. And the Buddha also sees her. So, again, the name of the Buddha's ma uh, mother takes on that quality. When the Buddha's mother died, her, you had the practice of the sororate, that is, the Buddha married uh, her sister. And what is she called? Prajapati. Praja is to, of course, procreate, but Prajapati is the great god of, uh, of Hindu, uh, Hinduism, you see. So, Prajapati is the real creator of the Buddha, the one who brought her, you know, the in some sense, the progenitor of the Buddha. And for her, there is no problem. After the Buddha dies, she can marry and produce two um, siblings, uh, step-siblings to the Buddha. So you have this uh, whole idea, so to speak, uh, carried to extreme limits. In the text that I just mentioned of the local Theravadins or the transcendentalists, where every physical aspect of the Buddha is denied. Everything. Carrying on that theme of Maya or illusion, the Buddha himself is Manomaya, that is a mind illusion. All Buddhas have that sort of mind illusion. And then the question is, and then therefore there's no problem for the Buddha to enter the mother's womb, you see. He's sitting there in a, in, a, in a squatting position, all limbs perfect, you know. There is no mucus, no, he's like a pearl in there. And then, of course, uh, the question is asked, uh, well, you know, if, 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 if all this is true, uh, how did the Buddha marry? And how did he have a son called Rahula? And now we can get the predictable answer. Rahula, too, came from the Tusit of Heaven and was born in exactly the same way. So the, this text then ends up in a kind of tone of triumphant exaltation, which I quote you now. The conduct of the exalted one is transcendental, his root of virtue is transcendental. The seers walking, standing, sitting, and lying down are transcendental. The Buddhas conform to the world's conditions, but in such a way that they also conform to the traits of transcendentalism. It is true that they wash their feet, but no dust ever adheres to them. Their feet remain clean as lotus leaves. This washing is mere conformity with the world. It is true that the Buddhas bathe, but no dirt is found on them. Their feet remain as clean as lotus leaves. This washing is mere conformity to the world. 
Though the Buddha's corporeal existence is not due to the sexual union appearance, yet the Buddhas can point to their fathers and mothers. This, my friend, is mere conformity with the world. So you have in two different, radically different cultural and soteriological traditions, you'll see, something similar appearing, the miraculous birth of Christ, the miraculous birth of the Buddha, in this kind of way. But, in the Buddhist tradition, there is another thing happening, which is closer to the true brand. The Buddha is the exceptional one, as Christ is the exceptional being, brought in this immaculate fashion, which is the Buddha's case too. So, in the Buddhist case, then, Buddhist, by the, in, you know, there is a strong uh, argument that uh, classical Hindu medicine developed in Buddhist monasteries. Some argue against it, but uh, there's a, uh, you know, whatever it is, there's a development of Hindu medicine, and by and large, Buddhists believed that you have, and they had elaborate theories of conception, physical conception occurs, you know, through the union of the parents, the woman must be in the right menstrual cycle, and crucially, the Gandhabha must be present. What is the Gandhabha? Gandhabha, you know, Buddhists have no theory of soul. In fact, the crucial aspect of Buddhism, unlike Trobriand or Christianity, is the doctrine of no soul. That is, everything, our bodies and the world are constantly changing, and there is no stable entity called the soul. Then what goes from body to body? It is the Gandhabha, or which we might say, you know, the spirit-seeking entity, which is also a changing body, you see. So the Gandhabha has to be present anyhow. But in some instances, you see, Buddhists discuss four kinds of uh, birds, through moisture, through eggs, through human sexual intercourse, and lastly, spontaneously, you see. So spontaneous rebirth then, the kind of thing that is normal in the Trobriand Islands, has become a special category, formalized, written about, and given conceptual formulation in Buddhism. So you have these fantastic stories about uh, spontaneous rebirths, and I'll just give you a few examples in my own research on the goddess Patini. Um, she, is, um, she is born from the cobra's tear, from a shawl, from a tree, from all sorts of ways, you know. One of the great heroes in Buddhism, uh, in Buddhist history, Duttagamini Abhe, who, is, uh, who killed a lot of Tamils and is very, uh, very popular nowadays, you see. Uh, the mother was barren, and uh, she went up to, uh, uh, to a, a novice who was about to die and told the novice, I want you to be born in my womb. And her husband was not present at that time. And there are hundreds of stories in the Buddhist tradition of these uh, uh, birds outside of bodily processes, and they are given a technical term, opapatika. You see, they are given, recognized, given a technical term. So then I'm, uh, I'm suggesting here, in this tradition too, you have uh, the notion of spirit conception that occurs outside of uh, uh, the human birth, but um, in, um, in all fairness, that even when, when you are born outside of that, the Buddhist idea of the Gandhabha has to be present. You know, whether you are born in, in a shawl or in a tree, you know, the, the, the karma of the person uh, is operative, and the karma-carrying being is a spirit entity or Gandhabha. 
So now let me expand our own uh, consciousness a little bit more. Yeah, take a little more of your time if you don't mind. And, and, and also point out at least in one instance uh, and, uh, from, from the Greek, you see where Empedocles says, for before now I have been at some time boy and girl, bush and a mute fish in the sea, you see. So I mean after all, it isn't, um, how, how the hell did he become a bush, you see, uh, unless it is through the kind of conception that we are talking about uh, in, um, in Buddhism and in the Trobriand and in other places. And so is, I think I don't want to deal with that since Tony Long is around here, you know. Uh, that, that is, if you look at Plato's time as, uh, contrary to many classicists, I'm arguing that that you know, in the, in the first generation in Plato's time years, people are born without sexual organs. And in the second generation, they could be born because of their sins as women and as plants. See, how did that happen? You see? So you have again this widespread notion of spirit conception. Here's my conclusion. This I will read out. I started this discussion with a touch of levity and seriousness. Actually, I omitted the levity. <laughs> it lost its way. And let me end this discussion with uh, a little bit of mild levity and a lot more seriousness. Um, the levity was, you know, I, I, I said I, I have written this book on rebirth and I, I want to, uh, you know, I, I mentioned all these people who wrote about it who are now uh, deceased, and I, this is a dead issue now. Um, and I also <laughs> pointed out that uh, since I am also in that sort of retirement position, you know, I also must my, my coitus make, and then I qualified it by saying quietus make. <laughs> that was a, let's get back to the serious. Uh, I only briefly responded to Mel Spiro's argument that the matrilineal trobrianders with their denial of physical procreation were afflicted with a higher quantum of Oedipal feelings than their patriarchal fellow humans in the West, thus countering Malinowski's thesis that trobrianders had a matrilineal complex where instead of the son sacred for the father you have the reverse. In relation to Hindu India, both Robert Go Goldman here at Berkeley A.K. Ramanujan, another friend who is no longer with us, argued that instead of the classic Greek form of the complex, you have in Hindu texts another form where the dominant motive is not parricide but filicide that fits in with the highly patriarchal structure of at least Brahmanically influenced society. But in Buddhist texts, this is reversed once more. And you have in the, the Greek model, so to speak, raising its ugly head. Owing to, I think, the larger presence of the nuclear family as a norm and a more liberal evolution of the female role. Therefore, let me present the views of the 5th century philosopher Vasubandhu, who deals in great detail with the entry of the rebirth-seeking entity, the Gandhab, I pointed out earlier, into various wombs, including the most desired one, the human rebirth. This spirit entity is immaterial, incandescent, and survives by feeding on odors, and this is very interesting, but it is very much like the Inuit or Eskimo, who also have, have a similar uh, idea of a spirit entity. The spirit entity, says Vasubandhu, 
arises at the place where death occurs and depending on its karma it can seek a variety of rebirths. In human rebirth the rebirth linking consciousness operates thus, I quote him. The intermediate being, that is the spirit entity, is produced with a view to going to the place of its realm of rebirth where it should go. It possesses by virtue of his actions the divine eye. Even though distant, he sees the place of his rebirth. There he sees his father and mother united. We are back to coitus. His, mother, his mind is troubled by the effects of sex and hostility. When the intermediate being is male, it is gripped by male desire with regard to the mother. When it is female, it is gripped by female desire with regard to the father. And inversely, it hates either the father or the mother, whom it regards as either a male or female rival. This is Freud in 5th century AD, <laughs> you see. Now we are also talking about, you know, how ideas, you know, get invented in different places. It's not the virgin birth, it's not spirit things, all sorts of other ideas, including the Oedipus conflict. And Freud never knew that he was anticipated ages ago by Vasubandhu. Furthermore, Vasubandhu then says, how excited this spirit entity becomes through sex you know, and desire gets rooted in the consciousness. And then he relates this brilliantly into the Buddhist idea of, uh, of tanha, or greed, you see, which is the second noble truth of Buddhism. The first noble truth is called dukkha, sometimes translated as suffering, or, or the unsatisfactory nature of existence. And what generates dukkha is tanha, desire. So the primordial tanha is the desire, eroticism, of the rebirth-seeking entity. But, to caution you, that the Buddhist idea of desire is a much broader one, much broader, and includes all sorts of desires, including, one might say, following Nietzsche, uh, the will for power, you see, the will for power. The Buddhists are very strong on this, and the uh, uh, Buddhist argument is that the will for power is also uh, uh, a very uh, rooted in this sort of uh, rooted in this kind of desire, and uh, and from a Buddhist point of view, I might say that uh, this this will for power with Nietzsche saw as both constructive and destructive. The Buddhist saw as primarily destructive, and one of the great tragedies of the Buddha's own life is that the Buddha was brought up in a, a small. Uh, uh, what sometimes scholars call a republican uh, city-state kind of place. And adjacent to him were the new empires that were sort of gobbling up these city-states. And in the Buddha's lifetime, he was asked, what is happening to your, to your own nation, to your own country? And he made the idealistic, but in my view, uh, a beautifully wrong statement when he said that as long as these Sakyans have their collective assemblies, as long as they air their views in a collective fashion and live accordingly, then nothing can harm them. But in fact, Kosala, the king of Kosala, who was also a disciple of the Buddha, you see, invaded the Buddhist uh, kingdom of Sakya 
put to death everyone, women and children, you see. But in spite of the grimness of that tragedy, there was no shaking the Buddhist theory that all wars are unjust wars. Thank you.